Oh. Whoa. How can something so small create so much of something so disgusting? Oh, God. Welcome to Double Impact, the podcast where we double back on the movies that impacted us growing up as 90s kids and decide whether they hold up today or are best left in the past. I was just grabbing a beer, sorry. I'm Tristan. And I'm Greg. <laughs> that was a, this is a, smooth, a smooth intro today. Nothing has possibly gone wrong. <laughs> hey, it's our third isopod. Third isopod. Thanks for joining us. It's good to be back with you. Still ironing out some tech challenges, but... Some tech. We are finding some tech challenges. I think we'll put up a photo of my current setup. <laughs> it's um, a little bit uh, MacGyver. A little bit poverty. Yeah. It's not impressive. My microphone is plugged into a potato and some <laughs> copper wire. <laughs> uh, well, if it works, it works. Mm. You know, it's a beautiful day. I've got a, I've got a couple of beers at the ready. Mm. And I'm excited to talk about movies. Yeah, me too. I've had a margarita, actually, to kick things off this afternoon. Interesting. Which I think I mentioned to you, I've described as the EpiPen of cocktails. Yeah, yeah. It's got a it's got a potent mix there, straight to the heart. Bam! All that it's got all the key elements, I suppose. Tequila. I've gone for tequila, contro, and lime juice. Ooh, it's potent. It is very potent. Um, I gave one to Carol as well, so I'm sure she's having a ball with the kids right now. <laughs> that leads me to my next point. My kids are here. My three-year-old Bruce is screaming in the backyard and my lo- uh, my one-year-old Lola is asleep. Anything's going to happen here. I'm sure if there's any office workers listening, I'm sure you've all been on a comp call where a, where a baby or a child of some sort has walked in or crawled in or whatever. So mm. that's how we're going to be uh, rolling today, Tristan, just it to is. let you and the, and the listeners, friends of the show know. it's Hey, it comes with ISO life. We're all used to it at this point, I'm sure. Yeah. So we may get cameo drop-ins from little Brucey and little Lola and little Carol. And little Carol. <laughs> Drunk on tequila, I can only assume, at this point. Uh, speaking of babies, yeah, there's baby in, in this title. Three Men and a Baby, 1987. It's a classic of sorts. It's a forgotten... Well, I don't want to say the words forgotten classic together because that makes it sound like it's some kind of lost treasure. But it is, it's kind of iconic. But it's kind of forgotten, it's, I would argue. Yeah, and you wouldn't call it a cult film. No. it's It was massive and it's gone. It's yeah. like, it's the avatar of its time in many ways. Yeah, with a, <laughs> with a slightly lower production value. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the apartment in Avatar wasn't anything to write home about. Having said that, yeah, <laughs> if they had to rent that apartment to film, then maybe not. This apartment is. Oh, I've got to save all this shit. We've got to. Oh my goodness! It's so much to talk about. Uh, this this whole aesthetic is really something. This is a time capsule. Is is really? I know we've probably thrown that around a few times, but this is a time capsule in its purest form, which we will unpack in. The minutes that follow. But before that, 1987, quite a year, was it not? It was, I mean, it was a year. Mm. It was a year. 
Look, there is actually, I'll, I'll be honest, there is not a lot to talk about in 1987 because the world was focused on the year ahead. The road to Expo. It was, there was basically the road to Expo. So, you know, um, at this stage, people were building, they were planning, <laughs> um, they were rehearsing. The, the divers were rehearsing. They were probably up to about five metres at that stage. Yeah. Um, doing their flips and whatnot, working towards the 10. You don't just, you know, you don't just, you don't just go up to 10 metres and, <laughs> you know. <laughs> do a uh, inverted reverse flippy. Right. You, you start, you build up to it. So, yeah. uh, you know, the, the year before, they're probably still at about five metres. It, it's, it does, you know, once you get the first few metres down, they're the slow ones. And then from five to ten happens pretty quickly. So, yeah, a lot was happening. Um, so I don't have a great deal to talk about specific to 87. I would say that there was uh, obviously uh, Black Monday, uh, the stock market crash of uh, October 19, very famous stock market crash, unrivaled since, world-changing event. And linking this to the show very loosely, perhaps explaining somehow, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it maybe is a loose explanation for how an architect, a cartoonist and an unemployed actor can afford to, I assume, own. It feels like he owns this place. Uh, well, own, yeah, there's a... F- yeah, I had that as a question. What is the living situation here? Yeah, and we yeah. will get into that yeah. with a few hypothesi, mm. some theorems, but um, yeah. maybe that's one of them. The stock yeah. market crash has facilitated a, a real estate slump that enabled them to snap this up for you know a cool 10 mil in 87 or something. But they all have such ambiguous careers because you can be a cartoonist and earn very little or earn huge amounts. You can be an actor and mm. earn very little or earn huge amounts. You can be an architect and earn like okay or huge. So, mm. yeah. I think these these guys seem to be in the latter. Then, yeah, but then the more you earn, why roommates? It's strange. But yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that in, in due course. <laughs> there, are, there are questions. <laughs> there, are many, there are many questions. Many we, won't, questions. we won't probably provide answers for. Let's just well, I think, be honest. I think it's, it's primarily bachelor life. They're just ah. growing down, I think. Yes. But I, I'm getting ahead of myself here because because before we dive into this movie, we really need to contextualise, don't we? Of, uh, yeah, oh, oh the, 100%. The year in film. The year in film. It was a big year for films, actually, 87. Um, Go on. Globally speaking, um, the number one movie in the world in 87, which I guess this has come up before and maybe I glossed over it, but now looking at it, it is kind of strange. The number one movie globally in 1987 was... Fatal Attraction. That's a wow. wow. It is a wow. Oh, sorry. That's all right. Look, I think I think our listeners have come used to the last few weeks of me not having my foot near the soundboard. Near the wow button. Yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah, we have to do manual wows. Manual wows. Um, this was also the year of Lethal Weapon, Good Morning Vietnam, Moonstruck, Predator, The Untouchables, Spaceballs, Wall Street, The Last Boys, Full Metal Jacket. Hmm. Mm. A lot of a lot of big movies. Um, one movie that did come in the top ten globally, but actually came in at number one in the US specifically. So a domestic number one for a little film called Three Men and a Baby. Mm. 
Voice of A. Isn't that bizarre? Well, this was the number one movie. It's good. I mean, the, the leads are big actors. They are. They are. They are big actors at this point. I guess it's more of a genre thing relative to what mm. you would see in the number one slot mm. these days. Mm. But yes, um, yes. number one in the US of A, mm-hmm. that's uh, United States of America, mm. uh, for those who aren't familiar with um, the cultural Some superpower. people just call it America. Yeah, some do, yeah. 1987 came out in November, budget of $11 million and a return of a whopping $240 million. Wow. Pretty, pretty, mu- pretty massive. That's wow. huge. That is huge, man. Like, look at that ROI. That's beautiful probably ROI. up there. We joked about Avatar, but from an ROI point of That's view, Romy. it might be close. Return on movie investment. <laughs> it is. That's a Rummy right there. That's a Rummy right there, baby. <laughs> Um, critically, it did quite well too. Seventy-five percent critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. For some reason, forty-seven percent audience score. That's sorry. What was the critics? Did you say seventy-five percent? Uh huh. This happened the other week too. It's funny when there's movies. I always expect the audience score to be higher than the critic score for movies like this. Yes, but it's interesting that it's not. But I guess also Rotten Tomatoes is a fairly new thing, so maybe people are only reviewing it as two thousand and somethings. I just don't know. I don't have I an answer. I just don't know either. I feel but, it's, but it's got Tom Selleck in a construction hat. Yeah, and other and outfits. Other other great outfits. Cardigans. <laughs> fine, fine cardigans. Suspenders. Oh, missed the Bow ties with one. a flannel. Oh, I like the suspenders. Yeah. With the glasses. I got great some, look. I got some comments on that. Oh, I've got half my notes are about Tom Selleck pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> what a dreamboat. <laughs> what a special man. Oh, man. What a specimen. What a specimen. Whoa. He is yeah. like a fucking blueprint for a man. Yeah. But then they broke the blueprint or the mold, I guess, mixed the metaphors there, and they haven't built one since because they don't make them like that they no more. They do that's not. For sure. They do not. They do not. Um, well, what's your personal relationship with this movie? With this? Oh, I picture? thought you were going to say with Tom Selleck. <laughs> with Tom Selleck, yeah. Um, I think that was like a... Some kind of Freudian, I was going there maybe. I think so. And we will cover that. Mm. Um, this yeah. was a big movie at the time, um, but I mean, I was five, so it didn't really take much for something to be a big deal, you know? Like yeah, my parents buying P- Cocoa Pops was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Excitement was never far away. Like, I don't know. Easily excitable. Just watching a childhood. movie. Was exciting. Yeah, this- yeah. Do you ever go to the grocery store now and see their Cocoa Pops and think, I could fucking buy all of you? <laughs> I definitely went through a phase of first having money. Yeah. Or like new money. My new money phase was just buying all the treats I never just had as a child. strutting down the lolly aisle like a, like yeah. how rich people must feel in like <laughs> Louis Vuitton or something. Just be like, yeah, exactly. exactly. It's like Michael Jackson when he goes to that weird store and is buying $200,000 vases. But I'm doing that yeah, with like yeah. Twixes and Snickers. <laughs> I have that one. I have that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have that one. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know. What was I talking uh, about? This um, movie. Who knows? Sorry, I'm in a, <laughs> thinking of a land of yes. chocolate. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was been 20 a- minutes ago. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> This would have been a trip to the movies, probably the fake movies at Macquarie Uni, with the with which was the projector. 
in yeah in a lecture room um, in the lecture theater which I would attend in doing media yeah. 101 in crazy what 20 years later crazy yeah. <laughs> and now we're talking about it another 10 years later well I think you got a visitor got a visitor oh hey Bruce Who are you talking to? um Uncle Tristan hi Uncle Tristan hi Uncle Bruce you want to say a quick hello can you say hi friends of the show Hi, friends at the show. <laughs> so leave a review. Leave a review. Leave a review. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uncle Tristan, I got a Matrix. Yeah, it's a Ben 10 watch. It's very special. You turn into aliens. Ooh, that's pretty handy. 10 different aliens. 10 different aliens. Say so bye, Tristan. Bye, Tristan. Bye, friends of the show. Bye, friends bye, of the show. Leave a review. Leave a review. Good boy. <laughs> Excellent. Um, the other thing to note was I was probably more of a Steve Gutenberg as a kid. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. you know, that sort of cool, fun one. Um, he was kind of like the Uncle Joey to Magnum's Uncle Jesse. A hundred percent. And on that note, that was exactly my thing. Like me in this era or soon after, I don't know if I saw it in 87, I was three years old, but that – to me, I don't know if it was just the era, or if it was me, or if it's a bit of both. But the idea of becoming a cartoonist or voice guy, either of those, like the 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 guy yeah. that's just drawing and doing voices and wears the bright shirts, <laughs> you know, it's like uh-huh. that was my guy. I wanted to be that guy. Although like, that was my this thing. movie might have steered you away because if I didn't notice, but I didn't notice when I was a kid watching it that he didn't he was the dud with chicks and couldn't. Get laid while Thomas Selleck's out there slaying. Yeah, which makes sense. Does it? I don't Are know. you fucking kidding me? Tom Selleck, baby. Yeah, I know. But surely Steve, you know, wouldn't be like battling. He's a successful cartoonist. Don't girls go for successful yeah, cartoonists with, with puppets? Chicks aren't into puppets, are they? <laughs> I was wondering that. With the puppet scene, I was like, are we supposed to, is this smooth? I'm not sure what this is right now. <laughs> well, clearly not. She cried and asked to bring her ex-boyfriend. <laughs> and then also like his, uh, fuck, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Sorry, sorry. You two, tell me, tell me about your, further about your memories. Sorry. Well, I don't have a lot of specific memories about mm. watching it as a kid, but this was always there. I probably watched it on video. Mm. Like I said, the idea of becoming a cartoonist was kind yes. of the ideal. That was my thing. Like I used to draw nonstop. I was decent at it. We really had similar. We had similar childhoods, Tristan. Yeah, yeah. It is one of those ones I look back on and go, "I wish I kept doing that. I wish I kept doing that." I wasn't very good. I was, de- I was decent. Were you? Yeah, decent, decent. Don't I was below. Away. I had two friends that were exceptional drawers, like full pro. And we talked about this on Teenage Mutant Ninja we Turtles did. episode, right? So I was the dumb one. <laughs> Just to, you did. if we've got any new Because there were different the versions. You know, there are like different levels of turtle that you could draw. <laughs> yeah. There's the basic one that's just like the dome, yeah. the swirly thing. And the <laughs> well, I had, and I'd copy would, my friend's prototypes though. So I'd just do slightly yeah. worse versions, but the right style. We should have a turtle off and post it. We should. We should throw that out to the friend, all friends of the show, draw a turtle. Draw a turtle. Or, or, right, or we'll, up to four. Up to four turtles. We'll make that happen. All right. But back to this. Uh, well, that's kind of all I had really in terms of my personal experience with this. I haven't watched this since then. I think this, this as we get into the rewatch, this is a rewatch in its purest sense. Yeah. This has remained untouched since 87. Yeah. 
which doesn't happen a lot for us, does it? No, it doesn't. And I think I'd I'd forgot. I don't know if this was even on our list really until when I got Disney Plus and I started digging through the back catalogue and I saw this one and I was like, oh, yeah, that existed. Yeah. So Disney Plus has, has proven a bit of a treasure trove for some of this stuff. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because obviously Disney, as you know, they made kids' movies or movies you watched when you were younger. That's not a bad, not a bad Greg way. Should I get into the origin story? Please do. Origin story. What if I told you that this was based on a French film titled Toi Homme et en Coffin? I would say... From 1985. I'd say Sacre Bleu. <laughs> um, that Sorry. was, believe it or not, that was French. And it, it roughly translates to three men in a cradle. Oh, I thought you were going to say uh, three men in a hit. croissant. Three men in a croissant. Well, it says coffin. And I was like, yeah. three men in a coffin? coffin? Yeah, that doesn't sound promising. That's more of a weekend of Boynies type scenario. But this was a big movie in um, the the uh, the world of fun cinema. I wonder if it said Finn at the end. Probably did. Uh, yeah, probably did. Yeah, and and so this this movie is a remake, classic Hollywood taking culturally appropriating things from you know other lands. Wow. Um, but it's oh, that was a good wow. It's but it's only one of many many remakes. So, Toi Homme et en Coffin was remade, obviously, into this movie, Three Men and a Baby, in 1987, but was also adapted as Balach Papramakari. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I apologize yes. for all of these. Okay, just disclaimer this is all going to sound horrible Wrong. and perhaps culturally insensitive when I pronounce these different titles and places and languages, and I'm maybe horribly ignorant of me, but forgive me, I'm reporting what I'm reading. Balak Bap <laughs> Fuck Brahmakari in nineteen eighty nine. Can I just ask you to repeat that? Marathi. Yeah, no, it's not gonna happen. Have it just to say um, it fast. Say it like, fast. <laughs> Come on. No. One crack. Uh, Balaj Bap Barakari <laughs> <laughs> yep. in Marathi. Tuval Tuval Aspasham in nineteen ninety yep. in Malayalam. Um, these are the languages, which was then remade in Telugu as Chinari Madula Papa. What? What country are we and in then, right now? <laughs> this is all India. I think it's different languages ah, in India. Beautiful. In Tamil as Thayama in 1991, into Asatat 2001 in Tamil as well. Tamil? Tamil. I don't know. Fuck. I should have really done some Google pronunciation. Yeah, stuff this is on this. horrible. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, well, okay. So, what's our friends and, and in the one show more. base like in India? Um, I don't know. It's like not going to be hard. great after this, unless we go viral for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, and then finally, in 2007, a film in Hindi titled "Hey Baby," which I knew how to pronounce everything in that sentence, which I feel really good about. Yeah. But that's ultimately like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven or so remakes from this humble gem of French cinema. From 1985, and I thought it would be interesting because you know when you get like translation of translation of translation of translation, I thought it'd be interesting to see what the plot was for that latest version from 2007, Hey Baby, in Hindi. I had a little look see here. Yeah. I'll call out some of the highlights. Did you? So you just uh, read it? it? Did you see any action? Or oh, I did, but it doesn't really translate to the pod because it's not in English. But I'll put some of it on Insta. But Arush Mera 
lives a fairly wealthy lifestyle in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. So it's set in Australia. Mm. With roommates Tanmay Joglekka and Ali Haider, Arush works for a popular dance club while Tanmay entertains children as Eddie Teddy and Ali takes care of their apartment. Mostly he watches cricket and does betting on it. Nice. Um, I'm reading it as it was written. I'm, some of this grammar is a bit weird, but all three are womanizers and usually end up sleeping with different women. One day, <laughs> well, I'm glad they're not all sleeping with the same woman. It's <laughs> One day, they find a baby girl outside their door with a note instructing them to take care of her since one of them is her father. The three men go to all the women they've dated and slept with, but none claims the baby is theirs. So the men try to take care of the baby, but she becomes a huge pain. So they drop her off at a house near a church. Then they set off for a Christmas party. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're, all, they're all thinking of the girl. Ah. This is the most bizarrely written plot synopsis, like more bizarre this than sounds the, like the great Carney specials. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read my notes? Um, a big rainstorm occurs and the baby develops an illness after being caught in the rain. Oh, jeez. Yeah, the three men stay with the baby in the hospital, realizing how much they love her. She recovers, and the guys become changed men. They love her, they pamper her, and grow an attachment towards her, and even apologize to all the women they used. They name her Angel, uh, but one morning a woman named Isha comes to take Angel back, claiming the baby to be her daughter. The guys are shocked as Arush tells them about his past. There's some whole thing about, I don't know, his past. Mm. I skipped all that. The point. I think the final point to land on here, which is interesting, which is the biggest differentiator, um, although I would argue quite a lot of that is getting pretty different from the original blueprint, but uh, the guys find it very difficult to live without Angel. Arush ends up challenging Isha to marry someone faithful within seven days who will accept Angel as a daughter. If she's unsuccessful, she will have to give Angel back to him. They sign a contract to finalise the deal. The men worry that they might lose the bet since Isha is a beautiful and wealthy woman. Um, Arush plans with Tanmay, Ali and Barat, who is Isha's father, in order to keep Angel with him. So I read a lot more than I meant to read, but I read a lot. That was like the halfway point. So basically like that's just the setup for the movie. The, the actual movie seems to be more about that last bit oh, of what the contract of... Does one of them marry her in the seven days? Probably. probably. That would be nice. Um, that would be nice. I did watch the trailer and you'll be happy to know that the apartment still had glass bricks, which I thought was quite cool. Interesting they went for an arranged marriage uh, option there. Well, yeah, so there's probably quite a bit to unpack there. Um, but I feel like I've probably been culturally insensitive enough in all my pronunciations to start making some assumptions about um, the, the, the cultural Correct. inputs <laughs> around that. I think that. we will definitely steer clear of that. I think we shall. In fitting um, But it looks like our... a delightful romp. It looks pretty fun. I watched the trailer. Now, just uh, that was a little deviation, I suppose, from no, typical origin no story Jose. stuff. But I thought it's nice to contextualize. We think of this as an American classic when really it's just another notch in the belt mm. of, of an idea born out of France. French. It's, this is the French, fi- French fries of movies. The French are quite the storytellers, aren't they, Tristan? They are. We are coming Les to Saint learn. Yeah, there's there's a lot out there. There's a lot mm. to be told. Um, no less than Double Impact. Ah, the Corsican twins. The Corsican of twins. Of course, of course. Um, so the French original was directed by a woman by the name of Colleen Serrault. Serrault? 
who knows, Sarah? I don't know how to pronounce that. So just to be clear, I'm as culturally insensitive across all cultures. Yes. Um, my pronunciation of names. runs wide <laughs> and deep. Exactly. Um, she was actually originally signed on to direct the US version too. As a Frenchie. As a Frenchie. I believe she was involved in the casting, but soon after that she pulled out. And the biggest surprise of all perhaps you might argue, one of many perhaps in the rewatch of this film and the research around this film, is that this ended up becoming directed by one Leonard Nimoy. One Leonard, Leonard Nimoy. Yes, that <laughs> was an intriguing uh, turn of events when his name... What a bizarre turn of events. In the uh, opening credits there. I was like, wow. Yeah. Pretty sure that's Spock. Not that I'm a big Trekkie, yeah. but I know that that's Spock. Yeah, exactly. So he had directed two Star Trek films at this point. Mm, a slight change of pace. So a, little, a little tweak, a tweaked, nuanced adjustment to his uh, material. Although one could argue the, the, the otherworldly 87 apartment represented in this film is somewhat akin to the grandeur of a Starship Enterprise. Yes, Built for intergalactic travels, yes. so I can kind of see a common thread there in some in some ways. With a yeah, I like it. I would think in that in that scenario that Captain Kirk is akin to Magnum. Yep, hundred percent. So um, the film was pitched to TriStar. TriStar passed on it. Then the film was pitched to Universal. Universal passed on it. Said it was too soft. This is too soft. A baby, come on! Um, and eventually, put Disney some drugs picked in it there. Up. Some heroin. <laughs> yeah, I was disappointed I didn't see a flick knife in this But anyway, we'll get back to that <laughs> And Disney took it, released it under their Touchstone banner um, There are a few interesting precasties So in um, in Gutenberg's book, um, he says both his memoirs The Gutenberg memoirs Yes, Gutenberg has a book, he has memoirs mm. He says that Michael J. Fox and Tony Danza were both in the running for the role For which role? Gutenberg's role Yeah, right, okay um, Apparently also Michael Keaton and Bruce Willis I, yeah, they kind of. You could see them being. I don't know about Bruce Willis, but you could see the others being, or Michael J. Fox, especially the cartoony guy. Mm. Uh, but apparently, Jeff Daniels, uh, Danny Glover, Kevin Klein, Gary Oldman, Bill Pullman, and Dennis Quaid were all considered for the role of Jack, which was Ted Danson. I mean, this this that's from that's from the old IMDb trivia. So who knows? Uh, there's every name attached to every movie ever. There. Yeah. They're probably all spoken about at some point. My favorite precasty, though, my favorite precasty story is that they did an open call for extras to be the party chicks, the chicks at the party in the opening. Um, so your chance to party with Tom Selleck. And 5,000 <laughs> women showed up. <sighs> Unfortunately, 4,900 would leave very disappointed. <laughs> 5,000. So that, that party was just full of randoms. Yeah. And it, it was four days of shooting, so there were like 100 chicks having a fucking great time with the the perfection of masculinity of 87. <laughs> anyway, um, should I get into the trailer? Yes. Touchstone Pictures presents Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, Ted Danson. Jack! Whew, Angela, whew, oh, you look different. What happened? I'm dressed. That's it, that's it. <laughs> Three incredibly eligible men hoping to meet some incredibly perfect women. So many women <laughs> in so, so little time. time. Now, at last, they're about to find that one girl who will sweep them off their feet. <laughs> That's a baby. It's a baby. Of course it's a baby. It's your baby. No, 
It's not my baby. It's Jack's baby. The child doesn't look anything like me. I have more hair. Well, I want to see the way you three big guys handle this one. I had to go to three different places, buy four different kinds of formula, two different kinds of diapers, bottles, towels, nipples. You do realize she did a doodle. Doodle? Doodle? Yes! Doodle! You haven't been able to work or to sleep. And there's been oh. all over this place for days. I build 50-story skyscrapers. I assemble cities of the future. I can certainly put together a diaper. Will somebody please tell me what the hell is going on around here? Figure it out for yourself. Are they always this strange? Yes, since they got involved with another woman. Touchstone Pictures presents three normally intelligent men and one little girl. So, uh, what do you want to do? They're about to discover the only thing worse than raising her... Oh, no, no, please, not on the silk sheets! ...is losing her. We should be her family. And let me tell you, the first time you hear the word daddy, I don't care who you are, your heart just melts. Can you drive a little faster, please? Touchstone Pictures presents a comedy about three dedicated bachelors and the one woman in the world they couldn't live without. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. I hate to leave you, but I really must say good night, sweetheart. Good night. Three men and a baby. I think she did a doodle. Your turn to change her. I'll give you a thousand dollars if you'll do it. Fucking good trailer. Yeah. It had the, it was almost the about to find out, but they used uh About to discover. Discover. D- discover's so yeah. highbrow. I reckon that must have come out. And that was a Nimoy? It was a bit of, yeah, it was a bit of, yeah. It was a Nimoy play for sure. It's probably after a while of girls, you can't say about to find out. That's too, too pedestrian. What about... Discover. <laughs> well, what's uh, what's your version of events from this? Picture? Yeah, sure. Um, look, the, the that was a good trailer. Let's be honest. Um, but I'll give I'll give a you know. A, ooh, Carol. Yeah, I'll I'll give a a bit more meat around the bones of that trailer if I if I may. Um. This film really sets out to remind the audience that even the shittiest kind of man is better (laughs) than a great woman. (laughs) Three charming, handsome philanderers living the life of Riley in a modern Gatsby world. A flash apartment, sexy parties with babes in sexy clothes. Their walls adorned with texture. Yeah, that's weird. They're having many kinds of sex with ladies. We open on a montage. Their elevator acting as a carousel of their flesh conquests. (laughs) Very soon after, one of their conquests, whom we don't meet until much later, dumps a baby on the doorstep. How despicable. But we soon (laughs) learn that these three reprobates, with about four days intensive practice, are capable of being better parents than a hard-working single woman ever could. <laughs> single woman who was knocked up by one of these gentlemen. In the end, the mom comes back. She's far less of a crackhead than her baby-dumping antics suggest, and they appear to live happily <laughs> ever after in Manhattan's biggest penthouse. Yeah, she's wearing a blazer, and she's English. Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. So it's mostly a love story. Between me and Tom Selleck. I mean, a baby and Tom Selleck. (laughs) Uh, 
Uh, that's what a that's, picture. That's it. There, there is quite a bit in the old sexual politics department to unpack there. But before we get into that, how was the rewatch for you? What was it? It was a treat. It was a little treat. Yeah. Uh, a freaking time capsule, wasn't it? Like from the get go, yeah. from the opening scene, in its purest form. You are, yeah. you are hurtled into the 1987 heights of Manhattan, and it's just. A sweet ride for, uh, for yeah, the entire time. Absolutely. I loved it. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I had to say I wrote Time Capsule down about a million times. That seems like a waste yeah, of like I said, ink or like typing. Well, I wrote it in blood too, so I, I passed out for a little <laughs> while after that. It is a word we say a lot because it's, sort of, it's sort of a category of is it worth watching? Yeah, it's a time capsule. But this is such a pure time capsule because it, it, there's no references to this really in anything. So it's not like it's not like I don't know when you when you rewatch a a classic classic it's like yeah of course that's that scene that's this. this was all almost new and it's such it's so aesthetically 1987 like it felt like stepping into a parallel universe almost and like I joked mm. before about the apartment but the apartment is almost like this otherworldly labyrinth of 87 pastiche <laughs> like it's <laughs> What it's is just it? some amazing so, 80s thing around every corner. Every like that opening the opening scene is uh Steve, Steve Gutenberg on a over the shoulder home camcorder, which is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And he's narrating and it's that alone is spectacular because he's like, Welcome to Lifestyles of the what does he say? Yeah, well this is that was one of my first notes too. I was like, is he supposed to be a voice guy? Is he supposed to be an Uncle Joey? Because he was doing terrible, terrible voices. Now I know that's rich coming from from double. It wasn't a good voice. But it wasn't a good voice. But the narrative was pretty funny. He said, Welcome to Lifestyles of the Average and Anxious. And I was like, Man, that is relevant. <laughs> that's true. That holds up. Perfectly. Average and anxious. That's that's going to be the name of my memoir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, he could have used it, but he's not so anxious. I understand. But um, wasn't it wasn't it a treat that just? Oh, absolutely. Oh, man, I wanted to be there. We would have been a hit at this party. I feel. Oh yeah, we would have. We would have. Absolutely. As as you mean, as three and six year olds, three and no, I mean as like us from the future. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Because we'll tell them all about the stunning career they would have post this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, two out of three. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, two out of three? Well, only Ted Danson really. Tom Selleck still has, has done enough, man. He's he lives he's on a, a ranch. Hey, this was the number An one avocado ranch. Does he avocado ranch? Yeah, that's big money. You know, there's avocado cartel now. I know. Like South I know. American shit. It's big deal. It's a big you deal. You wouldn't fuck with like they're out with, of the. Um, Magnum, though. Maybe that's his hustle now. Fuck. He's in the avocado cartel trade. <laughs> Maybe. My only other thing on the overall kind of rewatch vibes was I, I did I, I did get a little distracted in, in a few elements of the movie, like why are the three of them living together? We, we kind of touched on that. But why are the three of them living together? <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I was discussing this with Carol as well. And, yeah, I think our take was the same as you mentioned before. Like it must just be a... You don't. I think there are plenty of people who live in share houses, share houses, or have a you know bachelor type setup who could afford to live by themselves. I think it's just. I think especially in New York, for sure. But and I, I mean, like friends, right? But then, 
it, watching it at first, I was like, well, maybe they're not supposed to be that old. Because you know how we watch these old movies and assume everyone's older than us. We talked about Bruce Willis being only 32 in, in Die Hard. But Tom Selleck was already 42. Yeah, and Ted was 40. <laughs> yeah, so it is definitely towards the odd end of having roommates. But I think I think what they're shooting for, which if is kind of smart, is that it's dedication to the bachelor life to get the most pimp in place possible hmm. as three as three dudes. Yes. Three pretty rich dudes by instead of having their own pretty good apartments, get their own baller apartment with a fucking games room and a weird office with different sized televisions <laughs> to watch. Yeah, it's like he's got the sliver set up there. Yeah, oh yeah, the sliver. <laughs> They've got a pool table, uh, and then he's got just got like a, a this amazing greenhouse kitchen thing. I don't know what. Oh, that he is. was talking about an '83 wine, but then I realised that's only, that's like us saying, "Yeah, take the 2016." Was that the point where Ted Danson was asked, "What's what's a good year?" Panty dropper. To, yeah, to prong to prong a lady. I looked it up the quote because I thought he said, "Drug a chick." <laughs> Wait, what's the line? He says, "What's a good year for prong and chicks?" <laughs> <laughs> but he was asking for what bottle of wine to get for the cellar. I, th- I mean, I think if they're at your house after the party, you don't need to prong, whatever that means. I thought he's. I thought he said drugging, honestly. And I was like, holy shit. He took a dark <laughs> turn. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the rewatch, I don't know if this was a shock to you, but yeah, the whole drug dealer subplot really took me by. It's not even really a subplot. It's a main plot element. Hmm. That, that I was, was, was really unexpected. Yeah. I guess it was pretty common back then. But it just seems like totally unnecessary. And it was in the French film upon which this is based. So oh. I'm not going to blame that on some Americanization. Although you might, you would, you'd be forgiven for thinking that because I kind of thought that. I would forgive you. <laughs> You're a very forgiving person. Yeah. But it's like imagine if Mrs. Doubtfire had a, had a drug subplot. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you don't need it. There's enough tension in there. One article I was reading was suggesting that they had this in there to ensure there was enough like masculinity in the film to make them not seem too, you know, feminine. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, interesting. I don't, I don't necessarily see it that way. I don't think at any point in the history of his life has anyone ref- thought <laughs> anything feminine of Magnum. He is the dad of America. Of of Western civilization, perhaps, <laughs> and Indian. We both, yeah. As it turns out, we both said pre-show uh, how much of a paternal vibe there was with this man. Yeah, my dad dressed a lot like him. Like I've got a plane in the background right now, and it's the uh, the frisbee montage. And um, it's my dad, man. Really? Like my dad had a, always always had a beard. Yeah, but he always had like the big glasses. I mean, he's talking about him like he's dead. I just mean <laughs> then he, he doesn't dress the same now. But like everything, everything, the shorts, the everything. It's that old school vibe of it's just dad. And then one day one day, my dad shaved his beard off and kept his moustache. I wasn't there though and I saw a photo later. I was like, oh, Magnum. <laughs> it's Magnum. Guys, I honestly guys, thought he was guys, a spinning image of Magnum. Guys, yeah. guys, guys. <laughs> Guys, my dad is Magnum. <laughs> uh, big fucking deal. Big fucking deal. So let's do we can we talk a little bit more about the fashion then? 
Yeah. Well, dare I say that all, I feel like almost everything I've got to talk about here does fall under the the banner of in every way that this is a perfect time capsule. Mm. Fashion being fashion and male grooming being one key area. Ah, of that. grooming. Interesting. We can touch yeah. quickly on the use of the word hair mousse. <laughs> it was moose when I was a kid. Moose was the important part because they had more hair to deal with. This is the part that I found really interesting: is all of the side hair, <laughs> which like, doesn't exist you know, in, like, in this day and age, does it? For as long as I can remember, it's short back and sides, right? Like, yeah, give me a zero, give me a one, faded in kind of thing. Like, uh, yeah, they have hair so long on the sides that that requires its own styling, which is what I'm shooting for by the end of isolation because I'm not getting haircut. And I'm also going to grow out the most. So maybe I'll look like Tom Selleck by the end of this with any luck. I might need to drink some uh, cement <laughs> <laughs> to get there fully. Yeah, but, maybe. Um, Play some hockey. <laughs> but, yeah. Hey, he played basketball in uh, college apparently in high He's school. He's a very good volleyball player apparently. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's true Played too. hockey I think maybe. Um, but, yeah, that was, the, that was one of my big male grooming ones on this though is they had such – Long hair on the sides that, yeah, it required its own styling, which is something I've never had to contend with myself I was until pretty soon. Well, that was interesting because I, mm. I did ask how I go, is moose still a thing? Obviously, I haven't needed any for a while, but I did. I was a big mooseman in, in my primary years. Yeah, I haven't had Brill Cream for a while. Brill Cream? I'd, I'd heard of Brill Cream. That's what our grandparents use, yeah. I never dabbled. Um, we're in the we're in the era of wax now, though, aren't we? Oh, pomade. No, we we I think we're post wax, and now we're pomade. Are we? I don't know. Pomade. Oh uh, yeah, know. you've been out of the game. Mm. I do not know. I do know that Tom Selleck was pushing the boat out a bit here. Now, <laughs> you said you were into the whole uh, suspenders bro tie piece. Yeah, I've got a very specific um, view in my mind about what an architect wears. Okay, yeah. Well, I understood it to be like a heavily Nordic influence look, you know, very tapered, clean, um, dark. So, you know, maybe some black commons with, you know, dark skinny jeans, maybe a fitted knit that's also dark, maybe a black T-shirt. So I did some digging on this because I wanted to understand this a bit more. Um, It turns out there is a fair bit of content to help navigate uh, aspiring architects as to what they should be wearing or shouldn't be wearing. Okay, so I've got a couple of excerpts here, so bear with me. Um, I found one. Um, it says, An architect is employed to design buildings and structures that, big or small, should stand the test of time and remain current and inspired. Yep. And this should be reflected in the architect themselves. Okay, yep. The architect's choice of clothing should therefore never be out of style. And for this reason, reason should not follow any fanciful temporary trends that come in and out. Okay, yeah. Just as the architecture itself should not. They must aim, on the whole, to remain timeless and consistent with good quality and well-considered clothing. Now, I had a little bit further to that. Yeah. Now, I got, I, I got digging a bit further and I found that there is actually an architect's dress code. This is specific to a architectural firm called Sven Johang Jahalji. Mm. Atelier, I should say. I can't pronounce my, my Swedish is weak. Jo Sangatelia. Sven Jo Sangatelia. You sound like you're making announcements at an airport. Employees contribute to the culture and reputation of Sven Jo Sangatelia <laughs> in the way that they present themselves. 
An architectural appearance is essential to a favorable impression with clients and company shareholders, i.e. Sven. Good grooming and appropriate dress should reflect an employer's confidence in his or her aesthetic convictions and inspire others to realize that they are dressed unimaginatively. <laughs> an architect's attire should be minimal yet condescending at the same time. <laughs> Managers may exercise good discretion to determine appropriateness in appearance. Architects who do not meet professional, meet professional standard may be mocked and sent home to change. <laughs> Some basic elements of appropriate dress include the wearing of black and the need for clothing to be neat, clean and expensive. Note, at no time will an employee be permitted to remove his or her, air quotes, air of superiority. <laughs> wow. That's a lot to think about. Yeah, yes and no. In that there's very limited, like you can kind of just have a bunch of black shirts, I guess. Yes, I yes. So that is an architect's dress code brought to the people at Arc Daily. I suggest that is uh, humour, <laughs> minimal yet condescending at the same time. That's pretty good. So that is uh, so I, I you know I watched I watched this thinking it was a little off architect for me. Yeah, um, if I'm honest, um, this probably reaffirms that. But it's also Tom Selleck's. So but maybe this says a lot. Yeah, this says a lot about he doesn't play by your goddamn rules, mate. This is Tom Selleck, and if he's an architect, he's going to be the burliest, manliest, flannelettiest wearing, bow tie, suspenders, pleated pants, donning, loafers, comfortably wearing, (laughs) running out of adjectives. (laughs) He looked more like Um, a – he he looks like he shops at Patrick Johnson uh, Taylor's. He yeah he looks like there's like so much to there's so much there I'm looking at it right now it's on the screen I think Tom Selleck is the last of his kind they don't really make him like that no more no he is everyone's dad like I think what I expressed earlier is not a unique experience mm-hmm. I think you you said you've had a very similar feeling but he is so Tom Selleck that he might break a razor shaving like he's just that that. Manly and daddy, he he probably moisturizes using WD forty. <laughs> like he he bathes and scrubs himself using a scourer. You know, it's that kind of. <laughs> <laughs> he uses that black gritty that black gritty soap. You know that that, that soap that's uh, like sandpaper. He was, he's never he used a body wash in his life. He uses that shit. He's barely ever worked. Yeah, he's barely ever worked out, but he could probably beat Arnie in an arm wrestle. He's got that dad strength, you know. Oof, that's it. He's fun, that kind of funny guy. Funny enough, that's a that's a fact. The the former part of it, really, bit, not the Arnie bit. But he doesn't like a gym, so he um, he's very he's always been a very active sportsman, and yeah. he he lives on this ranch. So he he's like, well, I don't like working out, but I work on my ranch. I work every, all day every day, so I'm fit. He is just effortlessly wait effortless. Mm, effortlessly alpha. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not like he's not trying. He just is. I mean it helps to be six four. That's a that's a Is he six it's four? It's a robust height. Yeah, I think he's like just he's six four basically. That's a that's a big He's huge. Yeah. He's a, he's just a naturally big dude. He doesn't work out. He's fucking huge. The mustache is more well groomed than I remembered in watching <laughs> this. Like it's almost just like he has three eyebrows on his face. What are his eyebrows like? Has he got good brows? He does have good they're brows. They're the same shape, they're yeah, the same and they're shape. kind of triangular, like a moustache. The caricature is 
He doesn't have eyes. He has and eyebrows. Draws itself. <laughs> <laughs> but it's phenomenal. And all this, I'm not making fun of the guy. This is all like, I think in terms of male human genetics, it peaked in 1987 with Tom Selleck. I think that's just how it is. We've been on a down, a downward spiral since, haven't we? Yeah. Like it's hard to tell now because we're still so close to it, but I think in the year 3000 or whatever it is when the next civilization is unpacking um, that that prehistoric beast that destroyed the planet, they'd be like, hey, they appeared to have peaked in 1987 with this man with the three brows. Um, he's just a, he's a real piece of work. And you know what? I, I'm not the only person to think this. I told you about those, you know, 5,000 chicks that wanted to party with him, even pretend in a movie. But I found this clip from the same year in 1987 at his height of popularity, biggest movie of the year, on some kind of variety show that Dolly Parton had. And it is a delight and somewhat rapey uh, in terms of the banter being thrown by Dolly Parton herself. If you just ask me, if you could ask a question, you can ask me anything you want to. I'm sure the answer will be yes. (laughs) Well, you know, I was afraid you wouldn't recognize me. Well, you know, that's very possible because hardly anybody ever sees you in long pants. <laughs> if we want him to feel comfortable, don't we? Why don't you take them off? <laughs> oh, I love you on your show. I was only kidding. You're, you're easily embarrassed. Look at yeah. your face. It's all bloody. I was only kidding. I'm oh, real, okay, I am. I'm only happy that you're here. I just want you to know, though, that the next time you're in Hollywood doing something, you can use my dressing room. But there's only one catch. I'm going to be in it. Well, that's what I call selling hospitality. So how about that for the highly sexual <laughs> banter between those I two? I mean, that, he's probably experienced that for the majority of his existence, I would have thought. I'm pretty much... I think that's pretty much how every conversation he has goes. Yeah. Um, I want, <laughs> I want your seed. Is the subtext? <laughs> As I mentioned, he was already forty-two when this movie was made, mm. so rich history behind him already. Although I suspect he was probably thirty-three when he was born. <laughs> <laughs> he was never prepubescent. Yeah, exactly. But he was a a university student at the University of Southern California studying business administration when a drama coach tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, you should try acting, buddy. And by acting, I mean just stand there. (laughs) Just stand there and just be you. Maybe grow a moustache. Soon after he dropped out of college, went to acting school. Before he hit the big time, he paid his dues, let me tell you. He was in many many commercials. Mm Mm-hmm. He also appeared on The Dating Game, which I tried desperately to find a clip of. The Dating Game was like that one of those dating shows where it's like, yeah, Bachelor number one, tell me, what would your perfect first date be? It's, it's amazing. And apparently Burt Reynolds was on there, Farrah Fawcett was on there, Steve Martin were on there, all before they were famous. That's, it, there's some juicy clips out there. Unfortunately, none of the man in question. But he also filmed six TV pilots that never never got sold. Until, of course, he landed the iconic role of Magnum wow. P.I. in 1980. 
obviously a massive show. It was dancing. Massive show. Oh, did you watch it? Did you of watch course. it? Of course. Yeah. I think it might have been on Saturdays or something. It seemed like an event when I used to watch it. I think it was it. a Saturday. I feel like maybe we were having, yeah, fish and chips or something on a Saturday. Yeah, it would have been a fish and chip episode. Yeah. Yeah, obviously he had his Ferrari that became known as the Ferrari Magnum, the 308 GTS. Yeah. He yeah. didn't use a Magnum gun, crazy? though. Uh, interesting. That's kind of crazy. I always thought he did, but it wasn't. Um, did you know after he'd accepted this, so when it rains, it pours, after he accepted the Magnum gig, he was offered Indiana Jones, yeah. the original. Oh. And he had to pass because in his contract he wasn't allowed to do anything else. Yeah, and he respectfully went, oh, well, I've, I am in on that. He wanted to do both, but they wouldn't let him. And he went, well, rather than just running off and doing the other, he said, well, I've, I've committed to this. I've got to see it through. What a Because that's the kind 100%. of guy he is. This is the kind of guy. So I had the same point. I heard all caps. What a fucking guy this guy is. Like, so the quote he said, he's like, look, I made a deal with Magnum and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm proud that I lived up to my contract. And some people said, you've got to get in the car and, and drive into a brick wall and get injured and get out of Magnum so you can do Raiders of the Lost Ark. I said, I got to look my mum and dad in the eye and we don't do that. We don't so do I did that. Magnum. Yeah. So I did Magnum. That's not so bad, is it? Exactly. Dude's got perspective. I've got an avocado ranch. Exactly. He's in the avocado trade now. That's where you want to be. He also turned down the role of Mitch Buchanan. Wait, what? He also turned down the role of Mitch Buchanan. Oh, no, I heard you. Baywatch. <laughs> I've just taken it back. Yeah. That's wow. Wow. Makes sense. Well, I was thinking of, uh, yeah, I was thinking of other roles he should play, and that makes sense. I mean, pretty much anyone with a hairy chest makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But I was thinking he would also make a great, Nick Nick Fury in the Marvel Universe. Who's that? Uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character. But but pre-Samuel L. Jackson, Nick Fury w- actually was played by David Hasselhoff in an old movie. Oh, once. really? So he was, he was a white guy, very Hasselhoffian. Mm. But I, I, I think he could come back. As, we need this kind of 80s masculinity in, on the screen. Like every everyone in the Marvel movie has a shaved chest, for fuck's sake. Like... Let them be hairy. Mm. It's, Let it's insanity. Let them have just hair. Let them have a moustache, man. I will be interested to see if this post-ISO life is is a life with more moustaches in it because I think men are experimenting right now. We've got a good growth period to with which to, to cultivate something meaningful. November comes and goes, but how much can you really do in a month? We've got the time, guys. Let's put it in. Let's cultivate something beautiful. Let's change the world. And make it a, a little more selic for the rest of us. Excellent, excellent. But it is—I think it is a bit sad with this movie because none. Of, these three guys. This was the number one movie in America. And how many movies can you name that they did after this? Well, let's okay. Let's go, Steve Gutenberg. It's uh, this is our first Steve Gutenberg joint, and it yeah. won't be our last, obviously, because he's Mister Eighties. Yeah. Even Short Circuit, which I forgot he was in, yeah. Short Circuit, I forgot about that too. Probably why I loved it. Yeah. Cocoon, Police Academy. Now, I read a bit of, I, yep. was, I was doing a bit of reading on this because I was like, what did happen to him? So he is around. Um, he was in Sharknado yep. 4. Yeah. Um, not yeah. the first Enough one. <laughs> he wasn't in the first one because he was busy doing um, Lava Rantula, which is about uh, tarantulas from a volcano that spit lava or something. 
So he's doing. So he's found his niche. He's found, yeah, he's gone into the yeah. absurd. So he apparently is a very happy chappy around town. He's very positive. He never, he's never said a bad word. I believe his book is very positive the whole way through. There's no like, yeah, there's no shade. And that's a good call there's out. There's no shade throwing. I think that's one thing I've learned in doing this podcast, Greg, is we're very quick to judge these people, but it only takes a couple of hit movies to be pretty set up for life. But I, I, I hear you. The, the, the interesting thing that someone said in some kind of article that I read or skimmed was that this was he was coming along the same time as Tom Hanks, and they had a similar kind of persona as the yeah, sort of people um, forget everyday nice man. Tom Hanks was, um, whereas Tom started experimenting a bit more with some of his parts and taking a few more daring roles. He pushed the boat out a little bit yeah. more, and then they were both kind of a Paul Rudd type, correct? In a way. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, he's a happy dude apparently, and you know, I can't fault that. I think I saw him once in New York in the early days when I first moved there. Oh, yeah? And he was taller than I expected. So as soon as I got home, I Googled. I must have just got there because I didn't want to use my data. <laughs> I got home and Googled how tall is Steve Gutenberg and it checked out. I was like, Well, he didn't Steve look Gutenberg. too short against Ted Danson and Selleck in this movie. There's not many tall movie stars. So it's kind of cool to see the short guy in there still being over six foot. No apple crate. <laughs> yeah, no apple crates in this picture. Nemo wouldn't have no, it. I want a tall cast. <laughs> I want a tall <laughs> cast. <laughs> hey, I thought I'd touch on the now. Obviously, I've got kids since I last watched this, and watching yeah. this with Carol, they they actually nailed a lot of the new parent dynamics. Yeah. Okay. Cues you may not have picked up on yet, although maybe with your dog, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Which were awesome. So, I mean, this it doesn't take a kid to notice that there was a. You know, a mother and a father role established pretty quickly with Stephen Magnum. Oh, actually, I didn't notice that. That's interesting. Didn't notice that? Uh, so yeah, good point. It was point. pretty funny because Magnum started doing a bunch of the uh, textbook stuff that I and I assume many other dads <laughs> do. Like, uh, I'll go to the shops. I'll go to the shops. <laughs> oh. Get away from the kid. So he's at the store and not knowing what's going on. That Canned baby food was huh. unusual. I'm not familiar with canned baby food. Maybe that's an 80s thing. It must have been before they had all the plastics figured out maybe. Yeah, yeah, all they do soft things, things yeah. that make you feel mm. less um, bad about giving yourself your kid uh, packaged, packaged pre-made goo. Yeah, cans encased in gunpowder. <laughs> yeah. It's less metallic. <laughs> Wrapped in barbed wire, yeah. And then there's a, a classic, uh, oh, I've got to do the bottle, I can't, I can't carry the baby, I've got to do the bottle. That was another little classic one that gets rolled out. Ah, interesting. So the nuances, the, the new parent nuances were, were pretty good. I was that, yeah. that gave it a it was a it gave it an authenticity, Tristan. It was very good. Yeah, I was curious to see if that if you if you propped your ears on that, and I would assume not, but it was interesting. I'm hearing no. Well, I I was not that specifically, but in other areas of like gender roles and gender norms that I would have expected in '87, I would have expected more hijinks around like. Oh, it's a, but we're men. What do we do with a baby? Mm. And there wasn't that much of that. Like I, I was waiting for, you know, a staple gun and nappies and duct tape kind of situation, which never really happened. And you could say that, I mean, there's a lot in here that is, it's cliche. It's that kind of movie. But also the way they reacted first time handling a baby would not be so different to how I would react in that scenario. Yeah, so it's pretty hard for me to say that that's any kind of, I was really expecting because I I don't have kids 
obviously, um, from all the ignorant things I say about life without kids. But I was expecting, because it's a bit of a trope, especially in advertising, which is the world in which we've we've grown up in the last 15 years or whatever, is the, the trope of the dumb dad. Oh, dad has no idea what he's doing. Dad, this is, is hopeless. Mum's got it all together, which was not really in this, which was kind of cool. Like it was very – the transition to them loving this baby and taking great care of and being very, very nurturing and mm. all things that weren't typically associated with, with masculinity in these days, I would assume, uh, was, was there, which I thought was quite nice. And I also thought it was – the, the flip side of that – is I also thought it was quite nice that most of the women involved had no interest in this baby, kind of breaking down the, the stereotype of, you know, women know what to do with babies. One of them did and the others didn't give a fuck. Mm. They were like, I'm not doing that. It's not my job. You think just because I'm a woman I know how to do I'm gonna that? I'm going to bang the cellist from Hungary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I thought that was quite good and obviously being two thirty something white men, I feel like we're not the authority on this topic. So I did do a bit of research into some various pieces written um, from, uh, you know, feminist writers from different backgrounds. And there's there's a bit going on here that uh, there's pros and cons, I suppose. Yeah. It, it, elements of this have definitely dated when it comes to gender politics, but I would argue that it's not as alarming as I was expecting. It's not as – alarming is the wrong word. It's not as outdated, I guess, as I was expecting. I think elements of this are kind of progressive – I'd I'd, uh, I'd support that. Yeah, and I guess more than I expected. Maybe it was based on my expectations. But and maybe we're uh, just getting lost in Tom Selleck, so you kind of can be would, blinded a little bit by everything that's happening. Maybe I don't know exactly because he's he has been on the board of the NRA, and <laughs> I was pretty anti that until I read that, and now I kind of want to get a gun. Um, <laughs> and I bought three guns. Yeah, he's apparently like child. He was Charlton Heston's kind of protege of some description. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a farm. Farmers need guns. Exactly. You've got to shoot them avocados. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the pieces I were reading, it was interesting to see the trends over time because stuff that was written closer to the period in which this movie came out were a lot harsher in terms of their criticisms in gender politics. So um, some of the early pieces I read were saying things like, this is part of Hollywood's rebellion against feminism and I think it's probably what you touched on in your plot synopsis, the idea that something I didn't really consider probably through the limitations of my male lens, but how easily they became perfect parents. Yeah. More easy than it appeared for the woman. Like there's something about that like men can do anything perfectly, I guess you could argue. Yeah. Yeah, so. That was the that was my, my um, you know, provocative view for the synopsis. I didn't actually feel that watching the movie. Like you watch the movie and it's sweet and it's nice. Yeah, I didn't feel that either, but I think but I think if you're a woman and you felt that, I would be like, yeah, fair yeah, enough. If that, I can kind of see that. If you were that, that way, if you probably came into the movie with that sort of set of uh, views, then you, this may, yeah, I don't know. It was, and Yeah, and so... Exactly, and there's a, there's a bit more along those lines. So one piece I read by Aisha Doherty from a website called Real Honey, she makes a good point. She says, the men's struggles are funny until you realise that the tasks they learn are tasks women are not only expected to know inherently but to relish. 
While the men's acceptance of this role and their responsibilities are congratulated, the mere sight of Sylvia with her baby would not bring joy and friendliness from strangers. This is, of course, a double standard. So there's this point of like... That's not the movie's, that's not the movie's piece though, right? It's like the a product of its... That's life. Well, and its culture, like in the 80s especially, that it's expected that women know how to do this and let's applaud any man that takes out the trash kind of thing. Or that any, you know, there's memes of like... When your husband does something, he expects, you know, whatever. There's a bit of that to it. It is nice to see, which a, I think is a fair a dad point. Good with their child, though. I think I don't know. But the, exactly. So that's that's ultimately the point. I'm, and they should be, of course. But that's ultimately my point of view on it. But I do want to just give a bit of exposure to some of these other points of view. Yes, so of course. Also, Sorry. from um, no one challenges Tom Selleck masculinity, though. I assume that's not that's not no hundred no way. That's not up for debate. I won't hear it. But the other point I think is that often the idea of the woman becoming a mother, she kind of is removed from society to a degree. It becomes an isolated life, whereas these men become celebrated for having a baby and, and women throw themselves at them because it's so they're so blown away by this idea of yada, 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 which I think is kind of fair. But a more recent article, which from, from a media outlet I would argue sounds like it would be more critical called bitchmedia.com. Um, hmm. <laughs> um, oh, damn it. I didn't capture her name that, that wrote this, but I think it's pretty – this very much mirrored my experience of the movie, which was when Peter has the brilliant idea to ask his on-off girlfriend Rebecca for help because you're a woman, she just laughs, tells him that doesn't mean I automatically know what to do with babies and leaves for her date with another man. Yeah. By the time Jack gets back from Turkey, his friends are competent caretakers – Yada, yada, yada. He asks his mum to help him out. She's not interested. Three men and a baby does posit what is still in some quarters a controversial opinion that men can enjoy and excel at parenting, even if the child isn't genetically their own. And that love comes in all kinds of packages. And for that, it should be celebrated. And I agree, right? Like it's celebrate it. Celebrate it, baby. I think the it's real love. I can see it in Tom Selleck's eyebrows. Man, and I was surprised to see how sweet this movie was. And how soon that sweetness happened. Like, I, I was there, man. I was like, this is a sweet movie. Oh, I think it is. You can't argue with that. You cannot. I don't think it was funny. I didn't really laugh as a comedy. No, no, but I was, was a nice drawn in as a sweet, sweet thing. Hey, I would, I, just on your point earlier, talking about the guys taking the baby to the park and, you know, the girls being yeah. all over them. Not sure how factual that is. Carol kindly pointed out, and I assume this is from experience she's had, Women don't hit on men with babies at the park because there's a natural assumption that somewhere nearby is a mother that's attached to that baby. Good point. Whereas a dog. So Carol only hits on guys with no babies. Yeah, she doesn't hit on guys with babies at the park. <laughs> that's that's a waste of time. She goes for the yeah. non. She goes for the for the dog dog men. She's got a very limited amount of time because she's told you she's gone to Kmart. <laughs> she's, she can't she's waste got hours time when she goes to Kmart. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> Oh, I think, but the premise itself, I feel like, would be tough to be the premise now. Like, three men and a baby. Like, it's obviously embedded in a culture that thinks that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, obviously, there's plenty of kids now that have two dads. Like, that's not that crazy. I was thinking, it's kind of a genre of film as well. Like, Mr. Mom, <laughs> which, yeah, what, a man that's doing all the mom stuff? Oh, you mean a dad? <laughs> like, Mr. it's kind of. What's Mr. Mom again? <laughs> That's Michael Keaton. I never saw that. 
that was his breakout role. I didn't. I never well, saw it either. Been, it's a genre. It's you're right though. It is a genre because I was thinking even kindergarten cop to kindergarten a cop maybe like, yeah big daddy definitely like a man doing a big daddy daddy daycare like man doing the woman's Knocked role up, kind of almost thing. like that's that new dad kind of thing yeah the hangover they've got a baby almost. you know like it's not the center but interesting you say that I I had a point later when we talk about sequels and remakes that that the hangover was almost. Essentially, the two thousands version of Three Men and a Baby. Yeah, that's what I mean. Way. These, these kind are of the is. other because I was like, would like would this be remade? I was like, yeah. And I was like, it kind of already has. It kind of has, in yeah, various forms. And of course, the same year, the very same year, Full House came out, which is Three Men and Three oh, Babies, oh, Three Kids. Oh, it's the same year. That's weird that I gave that other reference. I didn't even think of the premise of the friggin' show. Well, I had a moment where I thought, oh, was that a ripoff of Three Men and a Baby? But it came out the same year. In fact, uh, Full House came out a couple months earlier. So it may be like an Ants, Bugs, Bugs Life situation, Volcano. Yeah. Other Volcano situation. <laughs> um, <laughs> I forget what it is, Dante's Peak. Um yeah, so it had, it definitely has a legacy. Definitely. But yeah, My Two Dads was also 1987. So so whether or not those are direct sequels or not, there's a, there's a legacy there. So while this movie is a little bit forgotten, that, that legacy is definitely there. It had a sequel, Three Men and a Little Lady, which was a bit of a rush job, no Nimoy, 38% run tomatoes. We'll probably cover it at some point, maybe towards – the twilight years of double impact. <laughs> um. <laughs> I was tempted to. I did feel like watching it, to be honest, because someone's getting married in it. I can't remember. Well, it's, well, apparently Tom Selleck's character marries the mom. Yeah, well, she's about to marry someone else, and he realizes he's in love with her, which I think as well is progressive because it's not Ted Danson. Yeah, you know, it is. It's kind of cool. But there's also talk of another sequel that's been on and off for years. The concept has been floating around Hollywood, but no one's calling Tom Selleck just yet, and that is Three Men and a Bride, um, which I think is a pretty good I'm, idea. They I'm should aboard. just make that. I'm a, aboard. Yeah, make that, put it on Disney. She would be, the, the kid would be like a couple years younger than us. That's like a perfect, perfect three. And the husband could be like great. ASAP Rocky. Yes. Oh, and it turns out one of the dads is racist, probably Gutenberg. Yeah, and then... Realise that ASAP Rocky's a legend. He's not just a rapper. Yeah, he's grills. got tremendous fashion he's sense. He's also got amazing is, fashion sense. You know what? If we're talking about the iconic aesthetic of this picture, what better way to mirror that in 2020 than with ASAP Rocky and his Damn. style? That just makes sense. Damn. Um, but we Mike cannot dropped. talk about the legacy of this movie without talking about the crazy urban legend. Have you heard about this? Of course, Carol didn't want to watch this movie because she said it was cursed because there's apparently a ghost in the background. There is a ghost, apparently. So just over an hour into the final cut of the film, there's a scene that shows Jack and his mother walking through the house with the baby. As they walk, they pass a background window on the left-hand side of the screen. This would be much easier if this is a visual medium. And a black outline that appears to resemble a rifle pointed downward can be seen behind the curtains. As they walk back past the window, 40 seconds later, a human figure can be seen in that window. Legend was, this figure was a ghost of a boy who died in that very apartment. Lucky boy. Yeah, the, yeah, right? What did, he, what did he kill himself for? He had it all. He had an arcade. Um, the most common version of this rumor was that the nine-year-old boy committed suicide with a shotgun, explaining why it was vacant and why they then 
why the family left and why they then shot this movie there. Now, I hate to be a spoiler of a delicious urban legend, but this is simply not true, Greg. It's, a, it's very little truth it's to a this. It's cut out of Ted Danson. I think it speaks to the low quality of VHS on a CRTV, CRT TV. Yeah. That, that was probably hard to make yeah. out. <laughs> but it's kind of obvious that this one. I have seen, I remember seeing it when I was young. I remember it was years after it made. My sister might have been in high school. I'm like, the don't tell, not don't tell, the. Three Men and a Baby ghost, and then I saw it and it looked scarier than it did when I watched it the other night and realised it was Ted Danson's cutout. Yeah, because his cutout is there explicitly later on. Also, this apartment doesn't exist. It was a soundstage in Toronto, so... Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen. The way this apartment exists. The the building exists. I looked it up. Yes, I know. Ten, Antonio Banderas or someone used to live there. Oh, really? It's um. So it's up on... Uh, it's on the Central Park West, I think around 66th. 66th Street. I looked it up on uh, real estate this weekend, and you can buy an apartment in there, a one bedroom for 1.65 million. Yeah, one bedroom. So, what's a 20 bedroom in there cost? Yeah. At the end of the movie? Well, a four bedroom, four bedroom, four, four bath is 7.4. Seven. Oh, I, I thought I saw something in there that was 20. But probably, I mean, that apartment probably would be 20. This was just what's literally available right now. He's like, I'll build you a room. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. It's not a racially diverse oh. cast, I would say. It's not, is it? If it was remade, no. you definitely need a, a bit more diversity thrown in the mix here somewhere. It, sh- it shared one diversity card with Seinfeld, which was the taxi driver that was also Maroon Golf in Seinfeld. Did you notice that, the taxi driver that drives him to the airport? No. Nah. Mario Joyner was the taxi driver that drives him to the airport. Mario Joyner. Which is probably one of the only people of colour in this movie and also probably the only person of colour in Seinfeld after however many bloody years mm. as Maroon Golf. So how about that? That was a little, little yeah. connection there. New York. Yeah, not bad. New York. Um, I, I mean, look, I, I probably got just a couple of little points that I would love to just touch on real quick before we get into the verdict. One thing that I, I can't ignore, I feel like we probably haven't given enough airtime to, is just the 80s-ness of some of the elements of the plot and the tropes, so the drug dealer subplot mm. um, or really main yeah. plot uh, is kind of insane, Un- completely unnecessary and just extremely 80s. Like I said, I was disappointed there was no... Adds, adds an 80s edge. There's got to be a couple of goons. Yeah, yeah, high goons. Uh, there was no flick knife, which disappointed me. But also <laughs> ca- cartoonist as desirable job, construction site showdown, um, frisbee montage. Oh, oh. Race to the airport. Um, ah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of 80s-ness in here. I mean, aside from the whole aesthetic. So good. The whole, that's all extremely 80s. But isn't that just – it's just beautiful. Like from – what have we talked about here? We've talked about the film industry itself, the fact that this was the number one movie in 87, the gender politics, the plot and tropes, the fashion design, male grooming, overall aesthetic. Like this is such a pure, pure, pure time capsule – um, should we get into the verdict and some recasties? Let's do it. Yeah, let's let's we'll, we'll do the recasties and verdict. So stick around. I don't know what to say, really. I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. I am I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. I want to have them answered immediately. You can't handle the truth. What are you waiting for? Ah! Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. Nothing further. 
that's all I have to say about that. All right, recasties. What do you oh, got? Look, I've got a. I don't have anything definitive. I've got a bunch of names thrown. In, I got and, something similar and, <laughs> and grouped. In, and, and I guess the probably where I landed is that you could. There's so much room for reinterpretation. Like you could do like a Just Jonah Hill, a trio, Leo DiCaprio, basically. and Kenny Powers option. You could do like oh. a Tom Hardy, Simon Pegg, and Nick, who's the guy that's always with Simon Pegg. Yeah. Combo. You could do a Michael B. Jordan and Zac Efron and and um, Miles Teller. Yeah, they did, they, they did a movie together. Yeah, you know the Hangover guys, obviously <laughs> Paul Rado and Wilson. Yeah, Zach Galifianakis. Because you get yeah. older guys, because these guys are a bit old. So I didn't land on anyone perfect. What about you? I, I had a few, but you worked a bit harder than me in that you created new trios that that brought different flavors, whereas I just kind of observed different trios that that could slot right in and so i've got a few different versions i got my 2005 version is owen wilson ben stiller and vince vaughn my 2008 version is johnny knoxville steve-o and chris pontius fucked up (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) my my 2010 version is will arnett jason bateman and tony hale also from a rest of nice or or michael Sarah, probably in there maybe i like michael i Um, I was gonna throw michael Sarah in with um Michael B. Jordan and Zac Efron. Oh, <laughs> uh, that works. Yeah. He could be the cartoon or he, guy. Or he, or he could go in with like um, who are the guys from what The World Ends, you know. The, he could slot in kind of anywhere. Yeah, he kind of works. He transcends. He's the guy that is um, the brother and he, you don't like art. <laughs> James Franco, good segue because my 2013 version is James Franco, Seth Rogen and Jonah yeah. Hill. Nice. But my now version, I've got two scenarios for now. The first, if it was still three men and a baby, would be the Workaholics guys. Who were they? Um, you know, you ever watch Workaholics? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, the guys, you'll know their faces. I can't remember their names. <laughs> Anders, Home. Yeah. Oh, there's a few. Keep going. Um, but the the actual remake that they, if they were to remake it today, I think, you know, they'll probably flip the script a little bit and make it three women and a baby. Mm-hmm. Can't think of another word for baby. Um, and... And because, you know, it's gender politics flipped, right? It's like, hey, we're women. We don't know how to raise kids. Isn't that crazy? And I would, so I would say Amy Schumer, Alana Glazer, and Zoe Kravitz. Yeah, get Zoe Kravitz in there. <laughs> yeah, right, I thought you'd like that. <laughs> I like it. Because that's kind of on trend now. Because, you know, that movie Bad uh-huh, Moms, uh-huh. it's like breaking the, breaking the, breaking the perception of the, the perfect mum bullshit that makes all mums stressed out. So it would be kind of building that into that this grand narrative that we find ourselves in around parenthood and perfect mums and all that kind of shit. Six degrees of dam. Six, six degrees of dam. I I got six degrees exactly. Oh. Mainly because we've made a new rule, listeners, for our six degrees of JCVD, where we connect the stars of this movie to the, to the biggest star of the world, Jungle of Van Dam. Um, we're not allowed to use the Expendables because it's too much of a shortcut. I got Ted Danson to Woody Harrelson to Wesley Snipes to Stallone to Dolph to JCVD. Not bad. I think mine's better. Yeah, yeah could be. I've got uh, Ted Danson. Yeah. Met Whoopi Goldberg, who he obviously dated for a long time. Oh. Do you know where he met her? No. On a talk show? No. <laughs> he met her on Arsenio. Oh, that's straight to JCVD. Arsenio to JCVD. Boom. Two people. Oh, okay. That That is tight though. So, okay. That's pretty good. I was excited when I saw that. I respect that. What about overall verdict? What do you say? We, uh, it's, a, we... it's a definitely a rewatch. It's a 
yeah, it's definitely a rewatch. It's a beautiful time capsule because it it is at at teleporting to a parallel universe that was this pristine eighty seven vision that hasn't yeah. been watched a lot since. But also in that it's not offensively outdated. It's not really saying horrible things about women or anything. So yeah. it's it's and a pretty the, harmless. The whole look isn't like it's it's obviously needs a little bit of a spruce, but it's pretty applicable now. Man, I don't know if I said enough already, but that apartment is fucking oh, amazing. It's you watch it for the apartment. It's it's confusing. It's yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but Bechdel test, unfortunately, it does not pass. <clears throat> um, porn Simpsons? parody. I certainly hope there's not a porn parody. Oh, um, I found a porn. I, well, I assume there's a porn called Three Men in a Lady. Oh, okay. Well, that's the sequel though, so I'm going to give it Three a Three Men in a Lady. Oh, I thought that was funny. Um, special effects doesn't really translate, but sure. There were no fake babies or anything like that. Did Simpsons <laughs> yeah. do it? Um, they do, Ted Danson's been in The Simpsons. Uh, Tom Selleck made, has been in The Simpsons. Who made Steve Gutenberg a star? Gutenberg, who made Steve Gutenberg a star? We do. And Leonard Nimoy, of course, was in two episodes of The Simpsons. True, true. Now I'd like to turn things over to our Grand Marshal, Mr. Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> I'd say this vessel could do at least warp five. <laughs> <laughs> and let me say, may the force be with you. Side note, did you know George Takei apparently... Declined to do that. Oh, loser. Exactly. So he, Conan said it on his show the other day how, because that was a Conan episode of, there's the monorail episode, which is a Conan O'Brien episode of um, of The Simpsons. And he was really pissed that George Decay didn't accept it. And then he saw George Decay in like a local car dealer ad and he was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but then they got Leonard Nimoy anyway and it was perfect. Um, yeah. But all in all, this movie is a winner. Maybe not in the ways that it initially intended, but man, it's sweet. It's 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 fucking it's highly enjoyable. It's a rewatch. It's a rewatch. One hundred percent. Don't expect to laugh, but expect to be just drawn in. A visual drawn delight. In. Almost like almost like you're watching a Nicholas Wendon Refn, whatever the fuck his name is, in like just absorb the vibe. Don't worry too much about anything else. Absorb the vibe. Absorb the vibe, people. Um, MVP, I feel like I know who you're going to say. Well, probably Tom. Yeah, agree. Uh, We're in agreement. All right, what did you think? Did you rewatch it? It's on Disney Plus. You have no excuse if you did not. Um, Leave us a review if you're enjoying the show. Otherwise, hit us up on Instagram, Double Impact Podcast, or on Facebook, Double Impact, or on Gmail, doubleimpactpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. We would, and thank you for your reviews and thank you for your social engagements. We enjoy to see some of you watching the movies before when we announce uh, we're going to be doing it. So We love seeing the pod prep. We love it. Yeah, love it, guys. Keep it up. Stay safe and healthy. Yeah. And uh, I've got to go back to my wife and family now and try and grovel for giving up two hours while she deals with our crazy kids. Yeah, i got to go to my furry dog child who's been crying, hopefully, off mic this entire episode. (laughs) Give me some peanut butter. Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys, we'll see you next week. See ya.